This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Hi, we're back. We're back in the same room. Actually, at the same table. <laughs> Different side of the table on this occasion, and it is just us. Sadly, we do not have our resident sound engineer. He did call in by FaceTime <laughs> briefly, but it's just us. It's just us. We've been on a wonderful journey through northern Quebec. <laughs> sort of. Not yes. really. Um, Maya did me the honor of accompanying me on my archive trip to Quebec City. We are stopping over in Montreal now. We thought, what better time to record a podcast than in the middle of an eight-hour drive? So here we are. Do we sound tired? I feel like we're very tired. We had a really good time, but Mm -hmm. we're very, very sleepy. Should we talk about bloody diseases? Indeed. So as you know, in October, we did a thematic episode um, Boy, did we ever. We really did. I would recommend listening to it. We love vampires, and I think we did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> Unbiased opinion. <laughs> However, we intended to do hemophilia this week, and we are, in fact, doing hemophilia this week. However, it is still thematic, which we did accidentally, but it still is. So we'll come back to that. Anyway, the point is... This week, we're going to be talking about the blood disease, hemophilia. 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 So I'm going to start us off with a little bit of background. Um, so hemophilia, also sometimes it's still spelled very Greek-y uh, with the A-E. What's that called? <laughs> Excuse me while I don't <laughs> drops of valerian extract into my tea. All right. Um, is this supposed to put more in than that? Yeah, This is so. the sound of valerian. Hemophilia is sometimes called the royal disease, and I am sure that Angelique is going to touch on that further. There are two kinds of hemophilia, hemophilia A and hemophilia B, which are differentiated by the issue in clotting factor that the person has. Hemophilia A is called classic hemophilia, and hemophilia B is called Christmas hemophilia. So as it is December, we are now inadvertently being thematic again. So as Angeliki pointed out, and which was confirmed by research, it is in fact just named after a guy whose last name was Christmas. But still, (laughs) festive, as you said. Brief explanation, hemophilia. It is a blood disorder. And unlike many of the other diseases we talk about here, it is almost always inherited. So it's not something that you like catch. Some people do just like develop it later in life, which uh, makes me very unhappy. Slight foreshadowing. Mm. For many, many years, the the people, (laughs) sorry. For many, many years, people thought that this was what happened to Queen Victoria because she had always said to her doctors that um, she had no knowledge of any hemophilia in her family. So people had theorized that she was the first one to introduce it into the royal families of Europe. Interesting. And that she, like, spontaneously developed hemophilia. Very interesting. Here's the deal with hemophilia. Basically what happens is that your blood is lacking a clotting agent. So you know when you get, like, a cut and you sort of bleed a little bit and then it starts to scab over and you don't just, like, lose all your body's blood out of that tiny little cut? In theory, if you had very severe hemophilia, um, you would be unable to do that. Cuts actually 
are less of a worry for people with hemophilia, of a bigger concern is internal damage, which is also a real bummer. So if you have a very severe case of hemophilia, your knees, elbows, ankles, other joints could like bleed from the mm-hmm. inside and you could start to experience like organ damage mm-hmm. and death. So yeah, like, you know, for example, if you bump into something or you get bumped in the neck, like your throat would just fill up with blood and you wouldn't be able to breathe, right? There's all these different ways in which it could negatively impact you and your life. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the science behind the inheritance of hemophilia, which I'm sure will play deeply into what you're about to talk about. But um, it is really interesting. I am not a geneticist, so bear with me. But basically, mothers can be carriers of this disease, but they rarely ever have symptoms of the disease. If they are a carrier, then they can potentially pass it down to their children, which makes the girl children likely to be carriers and the boy children likely to be symptomatic. So the reason girls are more likely to be carriers rather than symptomatic is because of chromosome. Brief recap on like eighth grade biology or whenever we talked about this. (laughs) I I may have many, many years of school under my belt, but do I remember my basic biology? No. I really had to, to go in to make sure I understood this. Okay, so women have an X and a Y chromosome. Men have two X chromosomes. Sorry, that's backwards. <laughs> Let me try that again. Women have two X chromosomes. Men have an X and a Y chromosome. The gene for hemophilia lives in X chromosomes, but so does the gene for clotting blood. Y chromosomes don't have a blood clotting gene. So basically, if a woman is a carrier for hemophilia, she's likely to have almost no symptoms, if any, of the hemophilia because her other X chromosome is basically counteracting that. It's got like a clotting agent in it. If the other X chromosome is also missing that very helpful blood clotting agent, then she would be symptomatic. Since women are less likely to exhibit symptoms, it's much more likely to just get generally passed down the family tree without anybody really knowing, and especially before genetic testing, you know, you could just go have a baby and nobody would really notice. So let's talk about sort of the math of that. If the mother is a carrier and the father does not have hemophilia, every son has a 50% chance of having hemophilia. Let's say, you know, you were a female carrier and you had a son and a daughter, your your daughter would be asymptomatic and no one would know, and your son could have a 50% chance of just not having it. So even though you had a son, it could go a couple generations without anybody picking up on it. The son would have a 50% chance of having hemophilia, and every daughter would have a 50% chance of being a carrier. If a father has hemophilia, he only has one X chromosome, right? So every single one of his daughters has a 100% chance of being a carrier, but not of being symptomatic. But the father only passes the Y chromosome to his sons. So if the mother doesn't have hemophilia and the father does, none of the sons will have hemophilia. Okay. (laughs) Is that enough genealogy? That's great. Yeah, it's weird, but like all I could think about is also those like punnet tables that I had to do in ninth grade. Anyway, doesn't matter. I love punnet squares. It's fine. So I also just want to touch on the ways you could acquire hemophilia rather than inherit it. 
So just if you get certain immune disorders, uh, pregnancy, which I hate that so much, <laughs> cancer, multiple sclerosis, and a couple of other things can basically just attack your clotting agents and your ability to clot, and then you would get the disease as a full-grown adult. Not super common. It is a thing that happens. So just one other fun concluding thing about the origins of this obviously as i mentioned vis-a-vis that weird ae letter hemophilia as a word has its origins in the greek it's made up of two words hyma which means blood and philia which means affection so i don't know i feel like affection is kind of confusing unless you sort of do a deep dive into interpretation there it seems like it can also mean like tendency to so i would interpret that meeting as like (laughs) you really like blood like you like bleeding (laughs) or like you tend to bleed which like i guess works but a little strange is this a good time to tell you about like the really early descriptions of hemophilia yes take it away it's in the talmud well they don't call it that but um (laughs) Yeah, from the 2nd century AD. It's in the New Testament of the Bible as well. And um, it mentions a woman who uh, bled for 12 years before touching the hem of Jesus' robe. Ah, faith healing. And then she was healed. And then you've got Abu Qasim, um, who is a 10th century physician, uh, described families whose male relatives died from uncontrolled so here full disclosure i did not find a whole lot of scholarly articles for the historical section of this episode it seems to be very like oblique and i wonder if this is just a gap in the literature that some aspiring historian of medicine should really be filling Uh, for me we come up with so many good Um, ph so i am actually in hell today because I've had to use non-peer-reviewed articles and I sound like such a jerk like oh my (laughs) (laughs) so I'm on like the hemophilia association like history section and I'm just not super I'm not super convinced anyway they should know I'm just being rude I used it too it's okay (laughs) (laughs) I mean I'm sure the more modern day stuff is perfectly valid but I'm a little bit suspicious of the information that I just gave you so that's the big grain of salt for you today okay I'm feeling a lot more confident about the other things I have to say okay so hemophilia is one of these diseases that we actually talk about a fair bit like it's made it into a lot of the pop histories and that's mostly because of its links to um, European royalty mainly Queen Victoria who's said to have introduced hemophilia into um, the royal families of Europe. She was nicknamed the grandmother of Europe because she married, um, I think, all of her children, or if not all of her children, then most of her children to the royal families um, of Europe, mainly Britain, Russia, Prussia, later Germany, ended up in Spain, and it ended up in Greece over a couple of generations. I'm sure there are more. Imagine... At the outbreak of World War One, the <laughs> the heads of state for Britain, Russia, and Germany are first cousins. They've been hanging out their entire lives. Cousin Willie, Kaiser Wilhelm, yeah, um, loved his British family, and they just thought he was really weird. <laughs> okay, I have a lot of like really random stories about this family because from like being a tour guide and like mm-hmm. working at Kensington Palace. And I used to love telling that story about, about Cousin Willie. Um, but 
Yeah, so so George V and Nicholas II were were like buds and they looked so much alike that they could have been twins. So it appears that Queen Victoria was a carrier. Um, the idea that she has like introduced like that she like spontaneously got hemophilia at some point during her life, thus introducing it for the first time into the royal family. That's pretty much been debunked now, and it's been pointed out that like you shouldn't just look at her um, at her like British family, but remember that like her mom was a widow and that she has two half siblings in Germany, so mm. you need to look at that as well. Mm-hmm. But that theory comes from um, like Queen Victoria herself saying to her physician that she um, had no knowledge of any hemophilia in her family when actually she might not have considered. The whole family. The whole family. Right. So probably not helping matters, she marries her cousin, <laughs> Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg in 1840. It's quite a well-known love story. Victorian Albert. Yes. My favorite museum to this day. My favorite part about that museum is that you're wandering around and they've like taken parts of historic homes that were going to be demolished and just incorporated them into the galleries. So like... You'll be walking through my favorite gallery, which is obviously early modern England, <laughs> and you end up in some like 16th century home. It's really cool. Such a good museum. Um, what a legacy. Continue. It is a great <laughs> legacy. Well, they wanted they wanted um, to open a museum where like regular people could go in and learn about stuff. I love it. She was such a rude woman, but also so ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. And she's like a, a historian's dream as well because she journaled like every day 1,500 words since the age of like 13. Anyway, so yeah, we know so much about her life, including how like horny she was for Prince Albert. <laughs> she was like, they had so many babies. Yeah, and she actually, I don't remember which daughter it was, but she appointed one of her daughters to redact her journals and censor them after her death. Can you imagine doing that for your mom's Oh my journal? god, why would you make your daughter do that? Because you couldn't trust anyone else? Kind of a That's hilarious. Okay, yeah. Um, so yes, uh, Victoria and Albert have nine children between their marriage in 1840 and 1857. So child number eight, who's called Leopold, um, is the only one who's symptomatic for hemophilia. He actually dies at 31 of a brain hemorrhage after a fall. So yeah, that's a classic example of like, he falls over, hits his head, and then gets brain hemorrhage, brain bleeding. But not before having a couple of kids, if memory serves, Mm. who are also... And there you have it. Yeah. And a few other of their kids are actually carriers. Beatrice, whose daughter Eugenie marries into the Spanish royal family, and Alice, who marries... Uh, Prince Louis of Hesse. So they have one child who's symptomatic for hemophilia, and then two others who are carriers, including the future Tsarina Alexandra, who's also called Princess Alex of Hesse. And she's the one who marries Nicholas II. Hesse is Prussia? Hesse is Prussia. Which eventually ends up being Germany. The most famous person to, to suffer from hemophilia, and probably the one that you've heard of in this context is the son of Nicholas II and Princess Alex of Prussia, so Tsarevich Alexei Romanov, and he's one of 10 male hemophiliac descendants of Queen Victoria, the only son of the Tsar and Tsarina, and the heir to the Russian throne. So in the absence of proper diagnosis or treatment for his illness, 
the royal family turn to what they think is their best hope for helping their son. And drum roll for me, please. Grigory Rasputin! Yay! Yay. <laughs> Our favorite villain. Disney villain extraordinaire. Uh, scapegoat in the, I called it a shit show, that was Russian politics in the 1910s. Yeah. Um, but he was actually a family friend and a spiritual advisor to the Romanovs. And arguably one of the many elements that infuriated people enough to lead to revolution. Most definitely. <laughs> most definitely. I will talk about that later though. So he developed a cult following and um, built up some political capital and tried to influence events of the day through political appointments mostly. Um, but practically his help consisted of prayer and recommendations of better food and more exercise to his followers and that would have applied to Alexia as well. There's a new season of a podcast called Unobscured by Aaron Mankey, and it's all about Rasputin's rise and fall, and it's a really fun time if you're interested in um, a number of episodes about who Rasputin was, what his relationship was with the royal family, and yeah, just everything that went down. Does it talk about all the ways that people tried to kill him? Yes, it does. If you, if a all listener does ways. not know about this, he's survived like four assassination attempts. Yes. It's an, an insane story. Yes. You can see why people might think he was supernatural. They, like, poison Definitely, him and he yes. just pops up the next day and is like, how's everyone doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, stabbed in the guts by a follower. Yeah. And he survives. <laughs> that, sorry, he gets stabbed and he catches it on the frame of a saint icon. So it oh, does not I kill him. Get this. I kind of love these stories because they're, they're so much a part of his mythology. Yeah. But he also, it's because he was an incredible statesman in many ways. Like, mm -hmm. he was poisoned. He didn't die of poisoning because he had been slowly microdosing himself with poison because he knew that somebody was going to try and poison him. And then the poison didn't kill him. That's some Machiavellian shit. Yeah, it is. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. The best part, okay, well, I have one more note about Rasputin. The best part is like when they finally got him, uh, they're like, he's definitely dead, but we gotta make sure because every other attempt has failed. They roll him up in a carpet. It's the middle of winter and they toss him into like the Yenisei or whatever Russian river they were on at the time. <laughs> when they did an autopsy on his body, they found that he had actually died of drowning. <laughs> he was still alive <laughs> when they threw him in the water. <sighs> So why do we care about diseases in royal families? Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that's because diseases are actually used in history as an explanation for events. And I think that's a generalization that I should get away with. I would allow it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, and I really wanted to talk about this in the context of European kinship, kingship and something um, that I really love to talk about and I think is fascinating are alternative histories. So kind of what we identify retroactively as uh, forks in the road. Like something happened that completely changed the course of events. Mm. This happens a lot with European kingship because dynasties rise and fall over issues of succession. And in Europe, what that means is that the government of a country for the most part passes from father to son and specifically from father to first legitimate son mm -hmm. yes so premature deaths of firstborn sons due to illness or accident are turning points for political regimes and often these are great fodder for alternative histories and a really great example an alternative history that we would all be familiar with and not necessarily know to call it that is all of the shows and movies that you've ever seen about germany winning the second world war so a couple of examples of things that actually happened <laughs> 
Henry VIII, arguably the most famous king ever, probably like in the English-speaking world. He only became king because his older brother Arthur died of the English sweats at the age of 15 in 1502. And if that hadn't happened, Henry VIII never would have married his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, and he never would have started the English Reformation in order to remarry Anne Boleyn. So that's True. one of these big, these big turning points. Charles I, after a period of like 20 years of civil war in England, Charles I was executed by Parliament in 1649, and Charles I was also a second son. Um, he became the heir because of the death of his brother, Prince Henry, of typhoid fever at 18 years old in 1612. And if that hadn't happened, there might have never been a civil war, there might never have been a regicide, and the Commonwealth, think Cromwell, mm-hmm. would never have happened, mm. uh, leading to all of the events of the present day. Disease. Whoa. Disease, <laughs> accidents. Um, my point being, we love these alternative histories, and in the case of Alexei Romanov, the appearance of hemophilia gives us some t- some like really tantalizing alternative history possibilities. So if Alexei had not been had not had hemophilia, the Tsar and Tsarina might not have had to rely so heavily on someone as hated as Rasputin. Mm-hmm. They might have been seen as stronger. Exactly. They might have remained in a stronger position with the Duma, their parliament, and with the people. And having a strong, healthy heir, as in times gone by, might have done wonders for their relationship with their court and their country, and it might have averted the Russian Revolution altogether. However, and here's my argument, um, Nicholas would still have been a terrible leader. (laughs) He would have been a really incompetent ruler, and it would still have made, he would still have made terrible military decisions that compounded centuries of of oppression of the Russian people. Like, I feel like Mm -hmm. in a lot of these alternative histories, it's ignoring the fact that history doesn't just hinge on a single person. Yeah. Like, there are still many, many conditions leading to things like a civil war or the start of the Protestant Reformation in England. Yeah. Like, there's still, there are other things happening. He so. might have lasted a little bit longer, but he still would have Definitely, screwed it up. yes. Yeah. He like, also undid, like, there were previous Tsar and Tsarinas of Russia that had, like, done a lot, like Catherine the Great, for example, in trying to change what life was like for peasants in Russia. Mm-hmm. And he basically popped up and was like, no. Yeah. And in a lot of these cases where you have someone like Grigory Rasputin, and it happened with Charles I as well, and I'm sure it happened with Henry VIII, there was um, a, a person in court who became the target of popular hatred. Mm-hmm. And that's just an excuse to not blame the sitting ruler because that's treason. Totally. And because they're appointed by God, and therefore you cannot criticize them. Yeah. There was also an element of... He was in with both of them, but he was really the Tsarina's favorite. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't Russian. And so there was already, like, yeah. people thought she was a usurper. She didn't really bother to learn Russian, as I recall. Like, German in a time of anti German sentiment. Yeah. But what a lot of other, I'm going to say, successful rulers, i.e., rulers who didn't get murdered, um, did was they would actually either execute or otherwise get rid of or dismiss these problematic individuals, and they would then take the fall for whatever it was that the ruler yes. had done wrong. And that is how government in, uh, in, during this time period worked. Mm-hmm. Fall guy. Yeah. Fall guy. Interesting. So, Poor yeah. Alexei. Poor Alexei, yeah. He um, just must have lived an awful life also. Like, all there was to do then was, like, 
horseback ride and like go on boats yeah carriage rides except if it's too bumpy which actually happened one time the carriage ride on vacation with his mother caused internal bleeding and then they had to write to Rasputin to ask him what to do because he wasn't getting better or whatever oh my god so that's my little rant about alternative <laughs> histories i hope you've enjoyed this i have thank you do you want to tell me about the present day context and then we can discuss okay i sort of also took it on some fun segues so today there's still about 400 people every year born with hemophilia that's not nothing it's not huge but it's not nothing there are an estimated like 400,000 people alive currently around the world with it a half million so we will talk about some of the treatments that have made their lives more accessible but it's also interesting i think that like our discourse has changed a lot when we talk about this disease because a it's not infectious no it's almost like weirdly notoriously a disease of like wealthy royalty Mm -hmm. but also it doesn't really seem to affect one group or race or culture more than another so it's a very different conversation i think here's my question for Mm -hmm. you does the can the average person get hemophilia yeah you just have to have a carrier or somebody who developed it so obviously this was way more likely before there were genetic markers that we could test for now most women go in and have like a genetic screening Mm -hmm. and so they can tell if like something's wrong but I, I do think that like our, our fascination with hemophilia as a royal disease plays into a lot of the other characteristic royal diseases out there. Like uh, I'm thinking about the Habsburgs, for example, like all of that intermarriage leading yes. to these like huge lips and jaws and uh, and madness. And yeah. All of these like so physical I... and behavioral problems. I think the reason we think of it as that royal disease is because there was that intermarriage, right? So you're way more likely to get somebody who's a, who's symptomatic and a carrier having children together and upping the chances of someone getting it. Whereas if you are an individual person and you marry somebody completely, like if you're a female and you're carrying it and you marry someone who has no history of hemophilia, there's a you know a 50% chance you just have a son who doesn't have it. And then you're good. And you just might never know, right? Whereas if there's two people with hemophilia and one of them doesn't know or one of them's mild and they're intermarrying so there's an even higher chance that they both have it you're way more likely to have a kid who has it so for obviously most of history the life expectancy of people born with hemophilia was very low like somewhere around 20 years old and that was if you were privileged enough to just be like delicate with your life like live like a glass person like if you could convince your five-year-old to sit still and never do anything exactly some people have it milder than others there's like a spectrum so it would be possible for someone to just like it would be really bad but it wouldn't kill them but yeah quite a low life expectancy in the olden days and the treatments that they had for it were like just kind of happenstance and like you it's it's sort of like miasma theory like you get the logic but knowing what you know you're like that's bad don't do that so basically the premise was always the same it was like your blood isn't clotting what stuff clots that we can inject you with so that your blood will clot like the, it's still the same premise it's called clotting factor treatment it's basically what's still done but for many years it was a bit of a free-for-all and people were getting injected with things like gelatin or Ooh, snake venom absolutely not bone marrow like and there was some foundation to that like you kind of get it but it definitely wasn't a great idea so, this thickens my gravy so maybe it'll exact, help. that's what i envision the thought process being 100 percent. okay so starting in like the 1920s or so treatment had a little bit more directionality 
and it was oriented around plasma. So plasma is an element of your blood. You know, you've got your white blood cells, your red blood cells, and you've got plasma. Plasma carries nutrients and hormones and other things through your bloodstream, and it contains antibodies and anti-clotting agents. So basically, starting in the 1920s, a patient could get injections of plasma that were extracted from donated blood and frozen in small amounts. But because they weren't able to, like because it was still quite diluted, it didn't have that much clotting agent in it. Like there was, there was other stuff in it. It wasn't just pure clotting agent. So it was pretty effective, but if you had really severe hemophilia, it probably wouldn't save your life. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s and 70s, they discover a plasma concentrate. They discover how to make this. And it the way it was described in what I was reading was honestly kind of silly because when they got the just like pure plasma, they would freeze it and then you would defrost it and inject somebody with it. They basically discovered that like the slush on the top was more pure like that's definitely not actually the scientific process but Mm -hmm. they basically were like when you freeze it it separates and if we just take the separated bit out and we can concentrate it more there's actually just clotting agent in it great makes it way easier to treat and care for hemophilia at home which is really important you don't have to go into a hospital and this discovery is made by a woman named dr judith Poole, who worked and taught at stanford for many years over the course of her career, you know, she was seen as really a pioneer in blood disease management. She was also like an avid feminist who worked on improving things for women in science. So she founded the Professional Women of Stanford University Medical School organization and was also a founding member and co-president of the Association for Women in Science, which still exists today to promote women in science. Just a fun little segue away from hemophilia, the co-founder of the Association of Women in Science was a woman called Dr. Nina Schwartz. She was a pioneer in female reproductive biology and was also a feminist advocate and a really vocal advocate for the LGBTQ community who came out as a lesbian herself. Fantastic. Yeah, just a cool fun fact about the people who were helping hemophiliacs. She also wrote a book called A Lab of My Own, which I like and I kind of want to read. Just brief badass woman scientists. Much better than a room of one's own. Far (laughs) far more relatable. In the 60s and 70s, this badass woman doctor is really improving the quality of care for hemophiliacs. Um, And this plasma strategy is being fine-tuned through the 70s and into the 80s. But one thing they hadn't figured out really how to avoid, I assume they realized it was happening, but they hadn't figured out how to prevent it yet, was that human plasma could transmit viruses that are carried in the blood. Mm -hmm. So this includes things like hepatitis C, which we all know you can get from things like sharing contaminated needles, but it also transmitted uh, HIV. And we were in the middle in the 1980s of a blossoming HIV epidemic. And for our other Canadian listeners, in Canada there was a really, really big scandal about this. So even though HIV AIDS had been reported as an ongoing epidemic and people knew it was coming from blood, like there were instances of transmission through blood transfusions, the Canadian Red Cross basically just didn't screen for the disease in the blood that they were getting, even though they knew how to. And they weren't the only institution that was guilty of this. So there was this huge decades-long like examination and trial of what had happened because thousands of people were getting sick. 
Um, and essentially, they just sort of said there's no coherent national strategy for testing blood donations. So, like, you'd get into a car accident and have your blood transfusion and wake up and be like HIV and you positive. And you be HIV positive, yeah. Yeah. Or Shocking. get a treatment for hemophilia. Yeah. So you're already sick and then you get sicker. Because there was no national strategy, a big part of it was the restrictions on where you were getting blood donated from. So uh, I didn't realize this, but Canada was importing blood from prison systems in the U.S. What? So there was a lot of like high risk blood donation that was not being screened. They had super readily available hepatitis C tests and they were not using them on the blood that was being donated. They intentionally did not purchase blood products for hemophiliacs that had been heat treated to be safer. And it seems as though that was because they wanted to just use up all their blood supply. And if they knew it was contaminated, then they wouldn't be able to. So we don't love that. That is outrageous. It truly is. So this led to a lot of new legislation and regulation around blood donation. However, we really flopped to the other side of the coin on this because, as I'm sure we all know, the rhetoric around HIV AIDS in the 80s and in many ways now was specifically around it being a disease that only affected men who have sex with men. And that if you had HIV, that was something that was like bad, dirty, you know, a result of this like terrible lifestyle. That's how it was portrayed. So not going to get too deep into it, but basically this is sort of the origin of the ban on men who have sex with men donating blood. So in many places, this is actually still in effect. There's a huge movement these days now, and I think Canada actually just passed it, like just now. But up until like this year, in many places, if you were a man who had sex with men, you could not donate blood period. They're now changing it and essentially it's around the riskiness of your lifestyle that makes it plausible that you would have some of those diseases in your blood. So now they're shifting legislation to be like if you have had sexual contact with another man within the last year or five years, you can't donate blood. So highly problematic. Just watch the movie Philadelphia for more information on how people who were unintentionally affected with HIV and also people who were having sex with men and were infected with it or treated. Devastating movie. Anyway, basically during this time period in Canada, essentially every single person with hemophilia in Canada was infected with either HIV or hep C or both. So. I don't know what to say. Yeah, isn't that appalling? I was very shocked to read that. Anyway, there's a very dramatic and upsetting history around, quote, clean blood end quote, and what our interpretations of cleanliness and disease are when associated with lifestyle. So an interesting part of hemophilia that is not great in our modern history. I mean, you don't come to us to be cheered up. Almost (laughs) never. (laughs) Yeah. So by the 1990s, they had developed a synthetic clotting factor. And this really removed this problem entirely for people with hemophilia. And it also made the treatments portable because they didn't have to be frozen at specific temperatures. So if you had hemophilia, you could travel, you could do things and regularly give yourself injections of clotting agent and live like a much more normal, less cautious life. So leaps and bounds. And they are these days working on some dramatic new gene therapies that while might not completely cure hemophilia, they basically up your levels 
of clotting agents significantly and you have to get them way less frequently than this like regular shot so for people who have mild hemophilia and have some clotting agent already it basically boosts your body's ability to produce it mm. and so they might only need it like once or twice like very rarely for people with severe hemophilia it ups the numbers of clotting agents for six months to a year and then they start to go downhill so it's kind of like getting an allergy shot kind of yeah so yeah so there's a light at the end of the tunnel and many people who live with hemophilia who have access to care live very full and healthy and happy lives with these treatments thank you for the optimistic (laughs) truly devastating episode (laughs) my pleasure well it has been a delight as always (laughs) do you have a fucking hooray to close us out yes before we drive another six hours yes my fucking hooray is that i am on track to have a successful research trip to canada i am getting into the last two weeks of work and basically like last month in the country until i go back to oxford and while that is bittersweet It's been a really productive and nice time, and we've also gotten to spend so much time together. And Quebec City was so pretty. I nearly died on the first day before (laughs) you arrived because I was trying to walk up and down the hills in the slush, but it was was really, really great to do that with you. I mean, my hoorays are very similar. I'm very happy you're here. We could see each other safely and happily and with great comfort, which is really the dream these days. Mm -hmm. I hadn't gone to Quebec City since our first year of university, which is longer ago than I care to admit. And... (laughs) 2010. It's more than a decade now, people, so... Would we recommend Quebec City in December to you? Perhaps not. Bring your crampons. (laughs) Yes, definitely bring your crampons, bring your winter tires. It was beautiful. It was festive. Like, we had a lovely light snowfall, and it wasn't super, super cold. Was that a light snowfall? Right, it was a semi-hefty snowfall. It wasn't like a blizzard. Anyway, the point is, it was, looked like a Christmas movie, really. Yes. And we, you know, had a nice time walking around the old city. We watched a lot of terrible Christmas movies. Indeed. Oh, The Princess Switch. Oh, that was great. Yes, one of my hoorays is that, okay, so I'm not, I mean, I'm Jewish, so <laughs> didn't exactly watch a lot of Christmas movies growing up. The terrible Christmas movie is a genre that is somewhat new to me. We really leaned in this week, mm-hmm. and I would say with great confidence that we would both recommend The Princess Switch 1, 2, and 3. In conclusion, we are intelligent, academic women who love absolutely trash television and movies. And who will drink wine out of a box. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't drink it like out of the box. The wine is in the box, and you put that in the cup. Because yes. we're adults now, we no longer so slap the bag. The wine is in the bag, which is in the box, which is then going into the glass. Correct. Great. We like wine and terrible movies. And poutine and history. And health. Thank you for joining us today. This has been In Sickness. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.